We're going to ring, read Psalm 47 together. I want to read a real positive psalm because we're going to get into an intense message. So uh, we, gotta, we want to strike a balance here today. Let's read it together. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loved. God has ascended amidst shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Lord, we want to express adoration and praise to you this morning. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of coming to your house to sing your praises, to extol your name, Lord. You are the mighty, awesome God, Father. And Lord, in the spite of the challenges that we may experience, Lord, in spite of the warning we even heard this morning, Lord, that we need to be vigilant, alert, awake, Lord. Father, there is a sense in our world that things are changing. Lord, I pray that you will invigorate us. We will be alive, watchful, Father, that we will be purposeful with our lives, Lord, that we will spend our lives for your kingdom and for your honor and for your glory. We thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. I'm gonna have you turn to the book of Job. Oh, I tell you, we're going to look at three chapters today. So we're going to really motor along. Isn't that amazing? And we're going to get the essence of Job's final response to his friends today. You know, many times we get people communicating with us about the need to pray. Pray. My friend is experiencing a double whammy. She's lost her husband of nearly 50 years, now having to leave her home where she's been living with her daughter and son-in-law, and her son-in-law is really making life miserable for her. Pray the end of a brutal marriage, a false accusation, betrayal, and amazing losses. Questions during the darkest hours arise when injustice abounds. Where is God in this situation? I was true to you, O Lord. Why am I the one who is suffering? A vibrant young Christian teen seriously injured in a devastating car crash. Operation after operation is performed, but nothing seems to be able to help her to regain the use of an arm. Years later, still serving God, Kelly's attending a Bible college and still trying to make sense of why God allowed that tragedy to strike her life. In sharing her story with John Walton, who happens to teach at Wheaton uh, in the United States, Kelly shares this amazing insight. This is many years later, you know, after times of, you know, God answering prayer, and then there was other times reversals happen in her life. How many know that can occur in our lives? You know, we go forward, and then sometimes we feel like we're going backwards. 
And God isn't responding the way we'd love him to do. And she says, I did find that my view of God was pressured during my own experiences of hardship. How many know that's true? That sometimes in the difficult moments, in the crisis moments, our faith is challenged. And now we're re-looking and re-examining. And she said, but it was a lie about his character that was so deeply buried that it was impossible to recognize until I started searching for it. So often in our struggles, she writes, our first cry to God is, why? Why would you do this or allow that to happen? Even by asking that common question, we are challenging God's character and how he runs the world. As we challenge him, it is a clear sign that it's not God's character that is flawed. But I think our view of him. That is a very profound statement for a young person coming to that conclusion. In trying to make sense when tragedy strikes, trying to regain our footing, trying to find some sort of cohesion, you know, especially when, you know, you think you've understood it and then it's not working anymore. You know, sometimes you can walk with God for years and everything works the way you think it should. You know what I'm saying? You're doing the right thing. You're trusting God. You pray. You believe. You know, you've done, you put God first. God's blessed your life. It just seems like you're doing what's right and God is affirming and blessing and guiding. And then one day you're doing that and you're not getting the same results. And then you begin to wonder, what in the world's going on? And then you have a tragedy come and you go, God, I don't understand. I've done everything you've asked me to do and why is there this major reversal in my life? And so it begins to challenge some of our ideas about who God is. In Job's final speech, which covers chapters 29, 30, and 31, Job is trying to gain some measure of understanding. He's trying to gain some sense of cohesion. Spiritually speaking, he's free-falling from a great height and is trying to land on his feet. When tragedy strikes, when crises of such magnitude hit us, in challenging what we believe, what often happens to people in pain is that they accuse God of being unfair. You know, I think crisis has a way of challenging many of the things we believe about God. And you know, if you live long enough, this will happen. So today, I want you to pay close attention because I'm trying to prepare you, okay? I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to prepare you that if tragedy ever comes your way, you will be able to handle it far differently than if you weren't prepared, okay? Does that make sense? I think we have to prepare ourselves. We have to have a certain mindset. You know, the New Testament says, be prepared to suffer, it says it right there in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. You know, read it. It can either move us into a more mature understanding of God or else reveal that our faith was not so much in the God the Bible reveals, but a God that we've created in order to manage life. You know, I think some people, they don't have a biblical faith. They have a self-orientated faith. And what I mean by that is it's about us and we're trying to get God to serve us. You know, we got the genie in the bottle kind of a God. You know, we ask God what we want. You know, we kind of rub the bottle and we get our answer. And, uh, you know, a lot of times God answers prayer. 
We know that that's true, and so it seems to be working, but there comes a day when we ask and God doesn't answer. Then what? It doesn't work out exactly the way we think. Then what? How do we handle those moments? Genuine biblical faith is a growing faith. God's not going to let you stay where you're at. I'm going to tell you right now. You know, he's going to develop you. He's going to push you. And because our understanding of God now continues to grow and mature as we develop. Like all growth, how many know there's pain involved in true growth? There's struggle involved in true growth. You know, if you want to know, you know, I think a lot of people are stagnant. They don't do anything new. They don't try anything. They're comfortable. They want to live in a comfort zone. Isn't that true? You know, I mean, I was in my 50s. I just turned 60. I was in my 50s. I started doing new things on purpose. Learned how to tap dance. How many know that's a new thing? You know, and if you think that's easy, try it. My mind was telling my feet what to do, and my feet were saying, we've never done this before. You know, or try learning a new language. I've worked on two new languages, Greek and Hebrew. Try that on for size. That stretches you. It makes you very uncomfortable. You cannot develop and grow without some sort of difficulty. I'm just pointing that out to us. You know, a lot of us don't want that. We don't want to develop. We don't want to grow. But others of us are eager to continue the journey of development and growth, especially in our relationship with God. I think we have to learn to stop trying to manipulate God to do our thing and learn to surrender to God to fulfill his purpose in our lives. Even when life does not make sense. You know what my prayer is? That at the end of the day, you'll be able to say, God is good even though your life may not be. You get to that mature point where you can believe that. Look at the three things about Job's life as he's now experiencing it. And he he brings out three things in these chapters that I want to look at. The first thing that Job does is reflect on what his life was like before the tragedies. How many know that's kind of nice? You know, if you're in the middle of a lot of pain and sore and suffering, you always want to remember back to the days when things were better. Quote the good old days. And in Job's case, they were better. There was no fooling about that. It's easy to say God is good when life is good, but when life experiences change, does our view of God change? Do we still believe God is good when life isn't? Do we still think we deserve God's blessings because we're living a godly life? That's an interesting thought because deep down inside we may believe that. We may believe we deserve what we're getting because we're doing what God wants us to do. But let me ask a question. Do we deserve God's forgiveness? Do we deserve God's grace? Actually, everything God does for us, actually, we don't deserve. So we should be filled with gratitude for what we do have. It's not a right. See, our culture is permeating Christian thinking today. We have developed an entitlement mentality in our culture, and it starts filtering into the Christian church and into our minds. Like, God owes us something. What does God owe me? Thank you. He owes me nothing. What do I owe God? Everything. So we got to get it right in our minds. The underlying assumption of Job is that God has forsaken him. Look at chapter 29. He, he, not only did he feel God forsook him, he, actually he felt God was his enemy. 
He felt God went from being his friend to his enemy, and he's going, what in the world happened? When did this change? When did this relationship change? In verse 29, verse 2, it says, For I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me. i got to ask a question. Was God watching over Job right then? Of course he was. But Job didn't feel it. Job didn't feel like he was experiencing it. Job was looking at his crisis and saying, where are you, God? He goes, when his lamp shone on my head and by his light I walked through darkness. In other words, you know what? When I was in tight with God, as he's going to say here in a minute, it just seemed like life worked. He says, oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. Well, what's Job suggesting? That God somehow disappeared? He is saying it, isn't he? He's basically saying, where are you, God? John Walton says, it's easy to slip into a pragmatic um, mentality that views our religious and spiritual commitments as means for gaining benefits. We may also be lured into believing that our righteousness does or should earn a special consideration from God. It is critical that we as Christians understand that righteousness is solely an end and never a means. Righteousness, this is good, is not a bargaining chip, but rather the offering that God asks of us in which we owe to him as our creator and our savior. Righteousness should be our natural response to the fact that God is God. What, what is he saying? That you and I do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Isn't that good? How many think that's the way it should be? I just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. You know, God, I don't do this to get, you know, brownie points with God. I'm not, you know, scoring and, you know, like somehow, you know, I'm, I do all of these things and then later on I can call in my chips. Okay, God, you know, you owe me. God doesn't owe me anything. See, that's what he's getting at. And when we develop that mindset, then we get upset with God because we kind of call in our chips and nothing happens. Then we think, you know, well, where's God? See, Job is reflecting back to when life was good and he could see hands, God's hands of blessing upon it. He's thinking that as long as he's doing the right things, God will continue to bless him and deliver him even from adversity. Uh, and I like what Dr. Longman points out. He says, Job may well think this is true because of his theological beliefs. He believed that a wonderful life was as it should be for those who are faithful to God. To be in good relationship with God should lead to a happy, painless, and successful life. And I'm going to just say to you right now, a lot of Christians believe this. You know? Now, let me tell you why we believe this. Because when we only read some parts of the Bible, this idea comes out. See, if you never read Job and Ecclesiastes and only read Proverbs and Psalms, you'll come to this conclusion. It's very optimistic, very positive. God's saying, hey, I'm gonna do this. I'll take care of you, blah, 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 right? But then when you read Job and Ecclesiastes, you get a modifying element. And what I mean by this is, it is true that if I do, I sow something, I do reap some things, right? That is true. There's a law of sowing and reaping. But it's not always true. That's the problem. And when we, when we say that it always works out this way, that's when we become disappointed. 
Because when it doesn't happen, then we start evaluating and saying, either I made a mistake or God's not fair. It always comes down to that, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Something happens and the first thought is, what did I do wrong or how come God's not taking care of me? Are we getting quiet in here? Is this actually what happens to us in our minds? Or do we just sit down and say, you know what? I don't have a clue what's going on. It's, mis- it's a mystery to me, but God is good. And whatever God's doing, I have total confidence in him. I believe that all things work together for good to those that love him. So I'm just gonna relax. I'm gonna be still. I'm not gonna get uptight. I know that I didn't do anything wrong, and I know God doesn't do anything wrong, so I don't know what's going on. And I'm, I'm okay with that, because God's God. See, there's a third option. I'm giving you a third option. You know, Actually, it's, it's kind of interesting here. We know that this may or may not happen, as I've said. Our righteous life is no guarantee that we'll not experience a trial or two or have some painful things happen in our lives. Now, I, I'll just tell you how strong this feeling was as a sentiment in the hearts of the Israelites. You, you think of Habakkuk. Habakkuk had a little problem with God. Let me, let me read it to you. Lord, you, are you not from everlasting? Of course he's from everlasting, right? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. So, yeah, he's got that straight. He's got good theology there. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Now he's talking about the Babylonians. And then he says this. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then, now he's going to question God, why then, Do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? What's he saying? I don't get you, God. You're sending the Babylonians to come here and discipline your people? Do you know those guys are worse than we are? What gives here? How can you use the bad guys to beat up on the good guys? See, doesn't compute in his mind. Now, I think God says, I can use anybody I want to do anything I want whenever I want. And in this case, he was saying to his people, look, you guys, you guys may think you're more righteous, but you guys have way more information. You have greater light. You should be behaving better, but you're behaving worse than you should. Yeah, I recognize they're behaving terribly, but they don't know any better, and I'm going to use them as an instrument to discipline you. Can God do that? Sure he can, and he did. But Habakkuk was having a problem with it. You know? So often in life, when pain comes, we see people blame God. Isn't that true? How many know that God gets a lot of blame for all the problems in the world? People get angry with God. How many know, ever heard of H.G. Wells? He's a very famous person, isn't he? You know, H.G. Wells lived during the First World War. He wrote something very fascinating. He wasn't a believer. But I want to just point out to you that when pain strikes, God gets blamed. He said this, If I thought there was an omnipotent God, which means an all-powerful God, who looked down on battles and deaths and the wastes and horrors of this war, able to prevent these things, doing them to amuse himself, I would spit in his empty face. Interesting thought, right? Somebody's upset with God. Somebody's blaming God. Are we hearing it? It happens. The temptation to blame God is evident all around us in our world. But what does the Bible say where God is at in a time of trouble? 
That's what I think. We've got to go back to the scriptures. You know, it says in Isaiah chapter 63, 9. Now, Isaiah is talking about when the Israelites came out of the wilderness. He said, in all their distress, he too was distressed. So what is God saying? When you're in pain, my people, I'm in pain. When you suffer, God says, I suffer. Isn't that amazing? Let me take a look at... Uh, this concept of God suffering with us, touch with the feelings of our weaknesses. The author to the book of Hebrews says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, speaking of Christ, who's God in the flesh, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The apostle Paul tells us it is God who shows compassion and comforts us in all of our troubles. And he says it this way in 2 Corinthians, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble. Now, I gotta stop and say something. If God's comforting me in my trouble, that would suggest that God has allowed trouble to touch my life. Anybody get that kind of a supposition? Isn't that kind of bringing that out? What I'm saying is, you and I got to stop believing that there will not be trouble in our life. It's a myth. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble. You'll have trial. You'll have difficulty. This world is not our home, folks. This is not the final destination. What God is promising us will be fully realized when we're in heaven. But in this world, we'll have moments of great joy, but we'll have moments of sorrow and trouble. But God says, I'm not going to leave you in your trouble alone. I'll be there with you. I'll be there comforting you. I have compassion towards you in your difficulty. Then he goes on to say, for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. We don't want to hear this. You know, folks, if we don't suffer with Christ, we'll not rule and reign with him. So we need to arm our minds. So, you know, suffering's a part of life. You go, I don't like that theology, Pastor. I'm going to go somewhere where they don't teach that. Well, that's not biblical. That's what I'm going to tell you. That's false teaching you're going to be disappointed because, you know, you can, you can live in denial all you want to. How many of you ever met people that live in denial? No, there are people, I'm not sick. They're sneezing, coughing, hacking. I don't have, have you ever, have you, ever you know, I'm like, can you please deal with reality? You ever met people like that? You know, they're running 105 and they're barely making it, you know, and they're passing on all their germs. I'm not sick. I'm going, please, come on now. Let's deal with reality. You're in denial. I've met a lot of people in denial. They think that's faith, by the way. I think that's foolishness. That's not reality. See, God, is, God doesn't want us to be idiots, you know. He wants us to understand some things. He goes, just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. In other words, we will also be comforted as we walk with Christ. But let me move on. Job points out that he was living the abundant life. Verse 6. When my path was drenched with cream and the rocks poured out for me streams of olive oil. Gerald Wilson describes this metaphor of the good life Job had been living. He said, my path was drenched with cream. Speaks of the comfort and the smoothness of his life. How many, you know, there's some people, they just live a good life. It's just smooth, you know. He goes on, people's respect for Job was easing his way in society as his other were clearing his path. While cream was also a sign of wealth and luxury, it seems to indicate Job's smooth progression in life. He was living the good life. You know, somebody said, well, you know, Pastor, Jesus said we'd have an abundant life. I, yeah, we do. And there are moments 
You know, it's good. We can't say it can get any better than it is. Job was living a good life. Job lived a life of honor. It says, verse 7, when I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square. The gate of the city was the place of the government of, of these ancient communities. So he was a person of authority, of prominence in the community. It says, the young men saw me and they stepped aside. That's a mark of respect, by the way. The old man rose to their feet, another mark of respect. So Job, wherever he walked, people showed him respect. He goes on to say, the chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouth with their hands. It was like, oh, that's Job. No, it meant that they didn't talk in his presence. They waited for Job to speak. It says, the voices of the nobles were hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Whoever heard me spoke well of me and those who saw me commended me. Job had amazing prestige in his culture. Do you know one of the reasons why Job's calamity was so painful is that Job had lost respect. Now, you and I don't quite get it the same way, and I'm going to tell you why, because we don't live in an ancient culture like Job did, and they have a whole different value system. Let me just read something from John Pelch. He's a, he's a biblical scholar. He says this, uh, about the honor and shame culture in which Job was living. And a lot of people, in, especially Asian people, live with this kind of thinking. It's different than the West, okay? They're not in the same frequency. In an, in an honor-shame-based culture, a person's role and status within the community defines his or her identity, okay? He goes on to say, corporate identity takes precedence over individual identity, with the result that selfhood is shaped primarily by social interaction, not private inward perception. See, you and I, we go, I don't care what people think of me, because we're developing our perception from within. In that kind of a culture, you never do that. It's not an individualistic culture. We're living in a highly individualistic culture. They lived in a community culture where your identity was shaped by the people around you. And so shame was very painful for people and honor was to be aspired to and Job had reached the pinnacle of honor and now he had plummeted all the way down so that as we're going to find out even the dregs of society were mocking him Job was humiliated he was living in shame and, and stated another way Jay Asmund says this in other uh, sorry self is defined largely in exterior terms uh, G. Asman says, if a person from an honor-shame culture abhors the idea of isolation, solitude, self-sufficiency, and independence and considers them symptoms of death, disillusion, and destruction, life is interdependence, interconnection, and communication with those webs of interaction and interlocution, which is kind of like the dialogue that constitutes reality. In other words, what these guys are arguing is that your identity is shaped by your community. And the community had rejected Job. He was humbled. He was humiliated. How he had fallen. Job moves from empowering others to finding himself in a state of disregard. In a sense, he feels like he's a non-person. Do you know there are people today, I've talked to them, they feel like they're non-persons. That nobody cares if they live or die. They're just a non-entity. They feel like they're a cipher. They have no worth or value to anybody. No identity. Can you imagine how painful that is? 
Before people respected him because he had the ability to be generous and he cared for the needy. Look at verse 11. Whoever here heard me spoke well of me. And then he goes, and those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried out for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. In other words, I cared for the vulnerable in society. He says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the wicked from their teeth. Job was a person who had authority and power and was able to stand up against social injustice. He was a hero in their society. And now, all of that had been stripped away. You know, how many know if you lose all your money but you only have $2, it may not be a big deal. But if you have $20 billion, it may be a big issue. How many know that probably will affect your life a little more? We need to understand how far Job had fallen. Job's false sense of security, I think this is important. Look what it says here in verse 18. I thought, oh, I love this. I thought, and I'm gonna tell you right now, we think the same thing. I thought I will die in my own house, my days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water and the dew will lie all night on my branches. What's he saying? I'm gonna flourish. I'm going to continue to live the life I'm living. I thought that I would live this life right to the very end. My glory will not fade. The bow will, will ever be new in my hand. In other words, I have strength. I have power. He said, people are going to listen to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I, I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among the, his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. I think Job was the leading citizen of their city. Job was the man. He was the most powerful, most esteemed individual in his society. He said, I thought this is the way it would end. And then it didn't end that way. I want to just say something. Whenever we live in affluence and we have peace, we develop a false sense of security. Folks, we're living in a false sense of security. I don't think you realize that. I'm going to say that again. You do not know the tragedy that may await you. Think about it. Do you think that morning when people went to work on September 11, 2000, and they went up into those towers. They had any idea that could be their last day. Do you think when they got up that morning that they were thinking that thought? Or do you think they got up that morning just like it was like every other morning they had things to do, plans to make, you know, go to work, we're going to get out and we're going to do this, and that was the last day of their life. They never saw that tragedy coming. As a matter of fact, the whole North American contact was rocked because we did not anticipate there would ever be an attack like that in North America. But you know, 14 years has transpired. You know what we think? We think we're okay. We think it'll never happen again. I want you to know our world is changing. Times have changed. We're a lot weaker than we've ever been. We're living in a false sense of security, folks. I'm not trying to scare us, but I'm trying to give us a reality. Do you think the people in High River thought 
maybe three months before the flood came that destroyed their entire community, didn't they just kind of think that life would just continue on? Didn't you, don't you think that they just thought that some of them would be buried there, that there would be a, still be a community there today? But all of a sudden, something happened so dramatic, it changed their lives that there were people today living in modulars offside Highway 2. It has totally changed their lives. Don't you think today there have been people that were healthy and vibrant, had a successful job, and one day they walk in, their boss says, you're done. You're finished. You're gone. And then you can't get a job. And then everything you've worked for, you've lost. Or, you know, you could get up one day and all of a sudden something doesn't work in your body. All of a sudden you feel a paralysis in your body and you just can't function the way you did before. And you know what? You're just thinking, this is momentary. I feel this numbness. But all of a sudden it, it begins to intensify. And as you go to the doctor, you say, I got bad news. But you're not going to get any better. Why am I telling you this? Because we think that life will always be the way it is right now. And when life is good, we only think that life will continue to be good. And why am I telling you this? Because if you and I do not prepare our minds to think that tragedy could strike, what happens when tragedy strikes, we're blown away by it, and we wonder, where is God in the equation? We're like Job. God, you're disappointing. You're a disappointment to me. You've let me down, God. You've almost become an enemy to me. Tremper Longman says it this way. When life is good, we see no end in sight. The danger arises in our expectations. If we feel that we deserve God's blessing because, or because of our faith and obedience, then when that blessing is disturbed by hardship, we are left confused and we're angry. Job is a good example of this. But the Bible in both Old and New Testament never promises that God's people will enjoy undisturbed blessings in this life. False teachers tell you that. But the Bible doesn't teach that. And I think we need to understand that. So let me move on to the second thing that Job, you know, not only is he reflecting what his life was like before the tragedies, but now he's lamenting his current situation. The good life is gone. Everything's stripped away. Job feels not only forsaken, but that God is fighting against him. He's perplexed. What is going on? This is not supposed to be happening to me. My wonderful life is now a nightmare. The community has turned their back on me. Remember now, he's living in this honor-shame culture where what people think has a power, powerful impact on your own sense of who you are. Look at verse 1 of chapter 30. But now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me, since their vigor had gone from them? Haggard from want and hunger, they've roamed the parched land and desolate wastelands at night. He's describing the people that are mocking him. In the brush they gather salt herbs, and their food was the root of the broom brush. They were banished from human society, shouted at as if they were thieves. In other words, these guys were the outcasts. And he says, the outcasts are mocking me. They were forced to live in a dry stream bed among the rocks and the holes in the grounds. They brayed among the bushes and huddled under the undergrowth. In other words, they're homeless. And now those young men mock me in song. I've become a byword among them. They detest me and they keep their distance. They don't even hesitate to spit in my face. I mean, before they would step back. Now Job is considered nothing, spitting in his face. He's despised. Wow. 
He says, now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they've thrown off restraint in my presence. On my right, the tribe attacks. They lay snares for my feet. They build their siege ramps against me. They break up my road. They succeed in destroying me. No one can help them, they say. Job is despised by the wicked. I mean, you know, it's interesting. If you're a child of God, you're a Christian, you stand for what's right, you've stood for what's right, you've said how good God is, and then calamity befalls you, you know who turns against you? The wicked do. They go, I thought you served God. I thought you said God was good. You know, they begin to mock. That's the hard part of having misfortune come your way. You're going, God, I've done what you've asked me to do, and now people are mocking me. What have I done to deserve this, God? I'm just telling you the conversations that go on in our minds. Job loses a sense of value. Who am I, God? What's this all about? I think we lose a sense of purpose when things around us don't make sense to us. Look at verse 15. Terror is overwhelming. My dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like a cloud. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. He's struggling with endless suffering. Verse 17, night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. Do you know, and I'm, I'm thankful I've had moments as a child where I've suffered physically, but not so much as an adult. But I know there are people in this room you suffer every single day, physically. And that physical suffering overshadows and curbs a lot of the joy that there is in living life. And those who are healthy, what do we do? We take it for granted. Those who are afflicted physically wonder if they'll ever feel normal. Life is now defined by their affliction. And it happens. Limitations. You start living within limitations. Job sees God in an adversarial role. He sees God as an enemy now, not as a friend. Verse 18, in his great power, God becomes like clothing to me, binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me in the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you don't answer. I stand up, and you merely look on. Verse 26, it says, or 22 says, you turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. Verse 26, you snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death to the place appointed for all the living. Yet when I hope for good, evil came. When I look for light, then came darkness. Wow. How many go, this is not a good time in Job's life? Anybody get that? This is bad news. Then, you know, and so one, he sees, he has now a distorted conception of who God is. His tragedy is reshaping his theology. Or, I'm going to show you something. I think his theology was always wrong, and that's why it couldn't stand up under the calamity he was experiencing. See, the final thing Job does First he reflects on what life was like before the tragedy. Then he laments his current situation. But now he challenges God by how he protests his innocence. All this goes to prove is that Job believes the very same things his friends believe. He believes in this retributive theology. He believes in what you sow is what you'll reap. In other words, if I do the right things, I'll get the right results, which I've already said is generally true, but it's not always. And Job is now experiencing that. At issue in the whole book is the motivation, why am I serving God? By the way, that's an important question. Why am I serving God? Do I serve God for what I get out of it? See, that's the issue. 
Because you know, some people say, well, it's not worth it. I tried God, it didn't work. I heard people say this to me. I asked somebody the other day, I was talking to one of the seniors and they said, you know, I have people, he asked people, you know, have you ever tried it? And they go, yeah, and it didn't work. So what they're basically saying is I tried it and it didn't benefit me. I was serving God for what I could get out of it. Wow. Better check ourselves. Am I serving God for what I'm getting out of it? Because if that's why I'm serving God, when it doesn't go my way, I'm checking out. Because the real test of faith, the real test of genuineness is what happens when tragedy strikes, will I continue to serve God? Do I still believe God is good even though life isn't? You say, how do you know about this stuff, Pastor? Look, look what it says. We're going to read it in a minute here. Job knows he's innocent, therefore he makes the assumption that God is not just. You know how often in our eagerness to justify ourselves do we condemn God? It's true. Here we see so clearly Job in agreement with his friend's theology. And he says it in verse, chapter 31, verse 3. He says, is it not ruin for the wicked and disaster for those who do wrong? He's basically saying, hey, if you're, the wrong, if you're bad, you're going to suffer punishment. And then he goes on and says, yeah, but look, God, don't you look at me? Don't you see my ways and count my every step? In other words, what are you doing? I only did right, and I'm being punished. You're not fair. That's what Job is saying to God. You go, how do you come up with that? Because now Job is going to challenge God. If I've done these things, then let God do this to me. You get this basically, hey, God, if I'm guilty of this, then I deserve this. If I did this, then do this to me. If I've done that, then do this to me. He does this in chapter 31. And he does it in five, I'm just gonna generalize it in five quick areas. The first area is in the area of character, his integrity of character. In verse five he says, if I've walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. He says, if my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I've sown and may my crops be uprooted. In other words, take everything from me. The second area is in sexual integrity. If my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door. In other words, if I've been seduced or if I've seduced others, he says, then let my wife, he said, grind another man's grain and let other men sleep with her. In other words, you know, if I've committed adultery, I deserve to have my marriage taken out, away from me. Third area is in the area of compassion and justice. If I've denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, whether, whether, when they've had a grievance against me, if I've denied the desires of the poor, let the eyes of the widow grow weary. If I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing with the fatherless, if I've seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without a garment. In other words, Job says, I've done all these things. He says, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. In other words, Job is saying, if I haven't helped other people and I had the ability to do so, then take away my ability to do anything. He goes on to say here, the fourth area is trusting in the wrong things rather than God. Job says, I used my wealth. I didn't put my trust in it. Verse 24, if I put my trust in gold or said uh, of, pure, of pure gold, you're my security. If I've rejoiced over my wealth, the fortune my hands have gained. Then he just basically goes on to say, 
Not only have I not tr trusted in my wealth, but I have not trusted in other gods. He said, if I had regarded the sun and its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hands offered them a kiss of homage, in other words, if I worshiped something other than you, God, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. And then finally we see jo how Job says he treated other people, which included things like enemies, family, and friends. He goes on to say in verse 29, if I rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune, if those of my household had never said, what, who has not been filled with Job's meat, but no stranger had to spend the night in the street, if I had concealed my sin as people do, basically he's saying, God, if I'd been guilty of any of those things, yeah, go ahead and judge me. But I want you to know I didn't do any of those things. In other words, God, you've been unfair. That's his closing argument. He's basically saying, do something about it. Verse 35, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. In other words, God. So why is God silent? Why didn't God stop Job? You know, I like what Ray Stedman says. As long as we defend ourselves, God doesn't. Job was standing in his own righteousness rather than trust God. The silence of God ends when our silence begins. Interesting thought. So the question I raise today is, why are we serving God? Do we serve God for what we get out of it? You'll find out when the tragedy strikes your life. Because at that point, you have to decide, will I serve God? Like Job said to his wife, do I only expect good things from God and not difficult things? Though later on, Job got a little upset about the difficult things because his theology was wrong. It was underdeveloped. Difficult times either causes us to grow in our pain or we just give up. When life doesn't make sense, can we trust God? Can we believe God is good even when life isn't? The book of Job challenges us to trust in God's wisdom and goodness in spite of the sufferings that often come into our lives. Amen? Let's stand this morning. It's an intense book, isn't it? It's a little philosophical. You know, my concern as a pastor is this. We have a lot of Christians in North America that have an underdeveloped faith. They have a very simple faith. I'm not against that simple faith, but I'm gonna tell you something. God's not gonna leave it simple. He's gonna move us so that we get past serving God just for the blessings. We gotta get past that stage. And I'm just letting us know now, you know, as a pastor, I just feel this responsibility. If our world keeps changing and our affluence and our sense of security is shattered, how will you respond? Good question, isn't it? Because I think we live in a false sense of security. I'm not saying that in a mean way. I'm not, I'm not trying to be negative. I pray that we never see tragedy. I pray that I don't experience it. I pray you don't experience it. I would love to say, God, deliver us in this room totally from all suffering. But that would not be realistic.
And so it would be far better if you and I would say, God, I want to bless you in the good. You know, we sing this. I bless you in the good time. I bless you in the bad time. Well, it's a lot easier to be blessing God in the good time. It's a lot harder to be blessing God in the difficult moment, isn't it? Isn't that true? What I'm trying to teach you today is God is God. God is good. Life may pose great challenges to you. Don't give up on God. God is beyond your and my understanding. There's a lot of mystery to this life, but I'm concerned in our culture that we have trusted humanity. We're trusting mankind. We're trusting in what we can do. We're trusting in our science, in our medical technology, all the technologies. We're trusting in this world and in this life. And I'm gonna tell you right now, it's gonna let us down. At some point in your life, this is gonna let you down. God will always be there. Even if we suffer, he will suffer with us. And there will come a time when the suffering will come to an end. It may be in this life, but I can guarantee you, ultimately, we'll all end suffering because we will be with him. Just with every head bowed this morning, you know, this is a major shift for some people. I think it's an important shift. It's helping you mature your understanding of who God is. How many here say, you know, Pastor, today I realize I've got to make a shift in my understanding of who God is? And that's you. Just raise your hand. I'm just curious today. How many people go, I've got to make a shift? I've got to realize God is good even when life isn't. That's you today. Just raise your hand. I've got to make that shift in my mind. Because otherwise I'm going to get upset with God. I'm going to be blaming God for things. And that's not going to help you, folks. How many here say, you know, today, Pastor, I realize God is speaking to me about the fact that I serve God for what I get out of it. And God is trying to teach me to serve God regardless of what I get out of it. Maybe God's speaking that word into your life. That's important, that we settle this stuff in our soul before the challenges come. Amen? So when the challenges come, we go, I've settled that. That's a done issue. You know, I made up my mind. I'm going to serve God no matter what. I made up my, I've made some certain declarations in my mind. I'm going to love people no matter what they do to me. Boy, is that ever freeing. It is. I'm going to forgive people no matter what they say or do. I've been challenged on these things, by the way. Because people could do nasty stuff to you. And you've got to just keep loving them. By the way, is that, is that the Christian thing to do? Is that biblical? See, if you start thinking about these things and saying, God, help me to do this, then when, it, when you have the opportunity, and you'll get the opportunity, I guarantee you, you say, I'm gonna love people no matter what, you're gonna have people going, really? They try stuff. I can guarantee you. You'll have to exercise love and forgiveness back. I guarantee you. Getting quiet in here. But that's what I'm trying to explain to us. Are we, how many are getting it? Did you guys hear it? Is God good? Okay. Even when life's not good? Okay. See, settle that in your soul. Is God loving? Absolutely. Even when others are not treating me nicely. Are we getting it? All right, Lord, help us. May these seeds of your word grow deep into the soils of our souls. 
And I pray, Lord, that no matter what comes our way, that we will be prepared for that day of challenge, that we will not fall apart, we'll not unravel, that we will be strong and true and mature and we will bring blessing and joy and we will honor you, Father, and we will have a right understanding of who you are. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.